vacation destination where guests may stay as long as they like. And here, even a hotel is an adventure. And now our national anthem. Ladies and gentlemen, Stitch has left the planet. W Radio, your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 310 for the week of January 27th, 2013. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic to wherever you are by talking about the things that make us happy about Walt Disney World on this podcast, as well as my videos, blog, live broadcast, events, my Walt Disney World trivia books, audio tour CDs, and much more. You can find everything over at WDWRadio.com. So this week, I want to help you enjoy and appreciate more of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures, not just in the parks, but in the resorts as well, because each is so replete with story, details, overlooked experiences, and fascinating history, often both real and imagineered. So join me as we virtually tour and explore the lobby and lounge of Disney's Boardwalk Resort. You'll learn about the inspiration for the resort and the significance behind some of the wonderful props, replicas, and real antiques that are found throughout the hotel. Jim Corcus joins me on a journey that will take us to the boardwalks of Atlantic City and Coney Island from many years ago to the one that was recreated at one of our favorite Disney resorts. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. I'll then have some announcements at the end of the show, including more details about our six-year anniversary show and how you can help decide what we do and when. We'll talk more about our WW Radio on-the-road events, including our group trip to Disney's Alana Resort in Hawaii, cruise on the Disney Fantasy, and upcoming events at the Walt Disney Family Museum and elsewhere around the country. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Disney World, I love being able to show you some of the details and the stories. And what you need to realize is that they don't just exist inside the theme parks and in the attractions. It's really in everything that we experience. And in fact, the resorts, I think, are sort of hidden treasures of themselves uh, from the, the theming and the stories and the dining and the entertainment opportunities that are there. But the real treasures throughout a lot of these resorts lie in the details, which are often overlooked. I think every resort has so many wonderful details and stories throughout. And today, we're going to look at one of those resorts and some of those incredible details, because this one literally sort of hits home. It's close to home for me, because I grew up and spent my first 40 years of life on this planet in New Jersey. And I spent many of my summers on the Jersey Shore, on the beaches, 
and on the boardwalk of Atlantic City. So this week, we're going to visit and explore the details and some of those hidden treasures inside Disney's Boardwalk Resort. And today, I'm once again joined by a man who loves a good saltwater taffy, a Miss America pageant, and the penny arcade machines. He is Jim Corcus, the author of the revised Vault of Walt and Who's Afraid of Song of the South. Well, thank you so much. It's always a joy to be with uh, uh, Snooky Mangello um, at the Jersey Shore here. But uh, I... You know, um, the situation is, as, no, as they say, please. that, uh, uh, yes, a, a lot of the, the wonderful details at the resorts are, are overlooked because it's seamless. It's that seamless Disney storytelling. They're so right that we don't pay attention to them. They don't stand out. It, they blend in with the story that is being told. And... Um, as you alluded to, I think one of the uh, things that's a Disney difference is that in uh, the Disney Resort hotels, they really do uh, it just so wonderfully in terms of, of a theme. It's, it's not just laying on a bunch of things. There's a, there's a story behind all of that, and uh, I'm, I'm glad we're uh, uh, going above our pay scale today <laughs> and uh, visiting the boardwalk. Uh, in and uh, villas here, so so thanks for inviting me today. It, it, it's always a joy to um, to uh, uh, talk with you and to uh, to share this and 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 with the listeners as well. I, I know that many of you write in and 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 you're you just love the stuff that Lou and I share. But if you have something else to add, if you have another piece of the puzzle, if you grew up in it, Atlantic City or you had a uh, a, a parent or a grandparent who, who told you stories about Atlantic City or, or Coney Island. Please uh, make sure you uh, send in uh, uh, the comments so that uh, Lou and I look a lot smarter the next time we talk about this. <laughs> well, what I like about the boardwalk, you know, look, when you visit the Disney World resorts, it very much is a transformative experience, right? You walk through the you walk into the lobby of Wilderness Lodge. You are in the Pacific Northwest. You walk into Kadani Village or Jumbo House. You feel as though you are in uh, a hotel that you'd find in Africa. But here at the boardwalk, I think more so probably than anywhere else, um, unless you grew up in Tahiti, this is where you you may actually get a sense of a place that you had visited, a, a place that you, whether you vacation there or for me was a place that I sort of called home because I did spend so many summers there. And as you walk around, you see things that, in true Disney fashion, really not just reflect a time and a place and a location, but almost are sort of pulled from the postcards and then brought here. Absolutely, and 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 Lou, as old as I am, I'm and I'm. <laughs> old as dirt. I, I get reminded of that every day when I look in the mirror. I have this real yearning and longing for these time periods uh, that were before I w- was born, you know, the, the, uh, and here, especially at the boardwalk, uh, capturing the, the 1920s and, and the 1930s, it's, it's just so comforting. It's just so, uh, uh, uh healing. And, um, Again, just done uh, so well with with such quality, with such a, attention to uh, to detail. And and you're right. You know, the the moment you walk into some place like uh, the Wilderness Lodge, it just takes your breath away. No matter how many times uh, uh, you've been there, you're just overwhelmed. And and here at the Boardwalk, you know, as soon as you walk into uh, uh, the lobby over there on on the left hand side, 
just like any good storyteller, uh, Disney is foreshadowing the story that you're going to be told. So you have a, an authentic Ballyhoo banner up there, and, and, and then you have um, uh, this little area uh, underneath where you have images of uh, uh, the story that, that they're, they're going to tell about uh, the, the diving uh, horse, you know, at uh, uh, the Steel Pier and um, Lucy the Elephant and, uh, uh, gosh, the, the first Miss, Miss America and the, and, and the wonderful uh, uh, shops uh, on on the boardwalk it, itself, and you're already taken away, and they ha- they have a greeter in the in the appropriate costume outside, and all of that, and so now you're stepping back really into the era of the uh, uh, boardwalk empire. But the boardwalk uh, empire, of course, uh, uh, concentrates on on some of those more rowdy aspects <laughs> like uh, uh, gambling and prostitution and, and speakeasies and, and all of that, which were very much a part of, of the flavor of the, of the 20s and 30s in Atlantic City and, and, and Coney Island. But, but there was so much more. It really was a, um, a, a hub of, of uh, uh, entertainment, uh, a lot of... Um, Wonderful uh, musicians and, and performers uh, uh, were in it. Were in Atlantic City. There was, uh, uh, in in fact, at at the time, it was described as a vacation in itself. And um, what always makes me smile is that uh, nowadays, that's what. Uh, Walt Disney World has become itself. <laughs> Walt Disney World is the uh, uh, Atlantic City or the Coney Island for uh, uh, a whole new century. Well, and if you, look, I'm sure you remember back in the 1870s when that's what Atlantic City was. It was pre-boardwalk mm-hmm. when it was. And look, if you visit Atlantic City now and you visit during the day, you drive around and you can still see remnants of some of those beautiful, like elegant hotels from the the mid-1800s, but it isn't until 1870 that the idea for this boardwalk to really sort of take advantage of the summer season but not let people be traipsing sand in and out of the hotels, this idea of this temporary summer boardwalk comes to pass and obviously eventually becomes uh, a much grander, much more permanent uh, fixture. Uh, Absolutely, and uh, a lot of people don't realize that the Atlantic City boardwalk was the very first boardwalk in the United States. And, and uh, again, as you alluded to, uh, uh, businesses, hotels, didn't want people running around on the beach and then traipsing the beach, you know, into the hotels, into the businesses. Same thing that Walt Disney ran into when he uh, picked uh, uh, Walt Disney World. He did not want to build near the beach just to avoid those uh, same problems. And that first boardwalk was uh, uh, roughly about uh, six feet wide and uh, about a mile long. And it wasn't just there uh, to prevent people from um, bringing in uh, sand. Sometimes people would go off on that vacation and they'd love the sea air and they'd love the view, but they don't want to set foot in filthy <laughs> nature there, that, you know, because these are these are elegant men and, and women and ones who could afford to take a vacation because people couldn't in those days. Um, and there weren't many places uh, to go, but you would, you would come out. And, of course, eventually the boardwalk uh, uh, expanded so that uh, uh, it was, uh, what, about... 65 feet wide, maybe 80 feet wide, and, 
and went on for six miles or more. And uh, just absolutely incredible. And then again, you had people who, uh, uh, you know, didn't want to play in the sand. Uh, so uh, a clever entrepreneur would rent wheelchairs. So uh, the, the rich people could sit in wheelchairs and, and be wheeled along the boardwalk uh, to look out and, uh, and see all of that. Which they had, I remember as a kid going to Atlantic City, um, mm-hmm. and they still have those sort of wicker mm-hmm. wheelchairs where you can sort of ride up and down. It was more of a, almost a, an attraction than it was a, a conveyance, but obviously the boardwalk had gotten mm-hmm. so much bigger with the, the casinos as well. So it did make sense to inspire a themed resort like this. It was designed by Robert Stern, who also designed the Yacht and Beach Club across the way. Very, very complimentary of one another. Um, you talked about this before about Stern's sort of interpretive design of architecture, taking something like the Northeast Atlantic Seaside Resort or a yacht-themed resort or even something like the Boardwalk and adding uh, not just a lot of reality but his own little spin on it as well. Uh, absolutely. In fact, that that's Robert Stern's philosophy is interpretation when it comes to uh, design as an architect, that you take something that's already existing but you interpret that for, for a new generation. So you're not doing an exact historical recreation, but you're using some specific elements uh, to almost create a, a cinematic feel. So you're, you're mixing uh, uh, history and, and cinema to create that, that uh, almost fuzzy memory of, yes, this seems right. This, this, this must be the way it, it was. I've, I've seen this in the movies of, of uh, looking at that. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so uh, very much used elements from uh, uh, Atlantic, uh, the Atlantic City uh, uh, boardwalk from the 20s and 30s, also uh, from Coney Island, specifically uh, Luna Park, which was uh, an upscale uh, amusement park. When people talk about Coney Island and Coney Island Amusement Park, a lot of people don't realize it was three separate parks. It was uh, uh, Steeplechase Park was the first park, and that really had the theme rides and exciting thrill rides too. Uh, Steeplechase was a uh, a gravity uh, roller coaster where you sat on steel horses and they went up and down. And then next to it was Luna Park, which was more affluent. And it was the Electric Eden. There were thousands of electric lights. And that that was uh, a novelty in those days. And they had uh, e- even foreign pavilions, you know, for Japan and Ireland, all of that. And then Dreamland, which which was more of a, uh, had more kiddie park rides type of thing. So Luna Park was an inspiration. Uh, but also, believe it or not, uh, uh, Cape May was an inspiration, which, uh, of course, themes into uh, Yacht and Beach Club over there, that, those same uh, uh, type of designs. And what's wonderful is uh, how seamlessly all of those elements are blended in uh, to this physical location. Right. So when it opens in July of 96, it's, it's not just the second Disney Vacation Club resort, but it really opens up as more than just a hotel. It opens up as sort of an entertainment complex because what the boardwalk now provides is a place to do as they did in the 20s and 30s. You wander on the promenade, you window shop, you eat, there's entertainers, there's boardwalk-style games and you hear from people sometimes, well, this, is not, this isn't what the Atlantic City Boardwalk actually looks like, but that's what Disney does. Whether you go to Adventureland or Animal Kingdom Lodge, you're not pulling out a specific location from a, a, an image or a postcard. You're, you're pulling in 
a representation of what the boardwalk was like. And as somebody who walked on the Atlantic City boardwalk, you do sort of get that same kind of feel. And when you see the street, you know, the, the boardwalk musicians and the jugglers and the storefronts, you very much get, if you've been there before, you very much get a very authentic feel. And, uh, and of course, it's uh, a lot safer than the real boardwalk. <laughs> it's a lot cleaner than the... And uh, you, you run into a better class of people som- sometimes. And uh, I was going to say the food is better here, too. But then again, you, there's some things you can't get here that, that you can still get in, in Atlantic City. Oh, a- ab- absolutely. And, and you're right. I, I think one of the things that makes this unique as a Disney resort is are those restaurants... Uh, the, the shops, the the entertainment uh, uh, that that is uh, taking place, and yes, not only the uh, uh, second uh, Disney Vacation Club property opened. The first was Old Key West, of course, um, but it was the first Disney Vacation uh, um, property that was mixed use. So you have the Broadway, uh, Broadway, the Boardwalk Inn. Uh, where regular people can stay, <laughs> and then the Boardwalk uh, Villas, where Disney Vacation Club members stay. And again, both of those blend together uh, seamlessly, although each uh, uh, section has its own uh, um, personality. And and yes, act, the Boardwalk was going to be uh, much more uh, elaborate than it, it even was when it opened in 96. One of the things that... Uh, had been planned and discussed was a uh, full-size carousel on the boardwalk, which I would have loved to have seen. Um, They were also planning for a uh, Ferris wheel that was going to be out in Crescent Lake. So you would walk out on the boardwalk and then uh, uh, out there on a ramp out to the Ferris wheel, and it would be lit up at night. I would have loved to have seen that with uh, fireworks. There were plans for, um, just like the Hoop-dee-doo review at... um, Fort Wilderness, there were plans that there was going to be a um, live-action upscale show here at the Boardwalk. Uh, Some of you may be familiar about one of the uh, uh, best-kept secrets of the Boardwalk (laughs) is there's an area called the Attic. It's right above uh, uh, Jelly Rolls, and it's called an attic because there's an awful lot of artifacts in there. So it it looks like a turn-of-the-century attic or an attic into the... uh, uh, 1920s, and uh, they were going to have a show in there that was called Walt's Attic. So you were going to have uh, music and entertainment. Uh, so it wasn't going to be, it, it wouldn't be a down home, slap your knee, uh, hoop de doo <laughs> show. It would be in keeping with the, the personality of the uh, um, boardwalk. It would be more upscale, uh, maybe uh, along the lines of uh, what the old Top of the World show was at, at the top of the uh, contemporary. So, um, yes, a, a, as affluent and, and overwhelming as, as this resort was, uh, there were plans to make it even larger. And I, I remember when there was discussion about that, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, whether all of a sudden you now have a, you know, do you want that kind of a carnival-type atmosphere in this area when you have Epcot Center, mm-hmm. a stone's throw away, and Hollywood Studios uh, right, you know, right down the lake, right down the uh, the walkway? Uh, 
is this what this was supposed to be be like? Would it take away from the resorts? Would it take away from uh, how placid and quiet it is uh, here for the most part? And I, I love that you mentioned Walt a- Walt's attic, the mm-hmm. attic, mm-hmm. because when you talk about a hidden treasure of this resort, it's actually one of my favorite locations. If you're staying here in, in the uh, in the villas. And you walk, it, it's a long hike down there. If they, <laughs> if they had a rolling cart that would take it, it would be much easier. But it is one of the most serene, beautiful, one of the most beautiful vistas of Crescent Lake and the boardwalk that you can find. And on a nice day to be able to sit up there with a drink, a cup of coffee, a newspaper, or your iPad, whatever it may be. It really is, you talk about that. When, you, when people went on vacations, that's what they did. They sat, they play gamed, they, they played games, they read the paper, they just spent time together. That's what I think the attic really embodies. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, it's also a, uh, a venue. So if you mm-hmm. want to have an event here, I actually had my wife's 40th birthday party, surprise birthday up there. It's a great place for a small, intimate gathering like that, a rehearsal dinner, etc. Well, obviously, you won't be able to go home tonight since you revealed it's the 40th. <laughs> well, I mean, her 40th birthday is coming many, many years in the future. Um, she's actually celebrating, I think, the 20th anniversary of her 40th birthday. So. <laughs> and, 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 yes, they've held weddings there. And uh, I, I've spoken to different convention groups uh, uh, up there. In fact, that was the first time I, I found out that there was a place called The Attic. They said, well, you're going over to the boardwalk to speak. And I, I was used to going to different resorts and they had convention rooms and all that. And they said, oh, and you'll be speaking in The Attic. And I go, what the <laughs> heck is that? What is all that? But uh, Lou is absolutely right. Absolutely beautiful. And and again, if you're staying at um, uh, uh, the resort, you could probably go to the registration desk and, and ask, and uh, someone uh, might take you up there and let you go in and uh, uh, take a peek. But but yes, uh, um, uh, we're we're actually talking right now in the Bellevue Lounge, and uh, as uh, Lou uh, mentioned uh, earlier, you know, in in the twenties and the thirties, you you have to realize there was. Uh, uh, no TV. There was no electronic device with uh, apps. There was no, uh, uh, you know, iPad and iTunes and, and all of that. If you weren't out playing on the beach or, or at the amusement park, what, what did you do with the rest of your time when you were on vacation? Well, you would usually be in a nice sitting room like this or a, uh, almost like a parlor. And uh, what you would do is you'd be... Um, uh, playing board games, and there are a lot of board games uh, in here. Lou and I uh, were in here taking a look at, at some. There's uh, Go to the Head of the Class, uh, which came out in uh, 1936, and it's sort of an early version of uh, Trivial Pursuit, where it's a classroom and there's desks, and you start at the back of the class, and by answering questions in science and geography and whatever you you move up you know on the desk towards the front and there's cars just, just what kids want to do on vacation is play a game <laughs> where it brings them back to school yeah well again you don't take kids on vacation <laughs> what kind of vacation is that don't take your kids on vacation uh you want to be a kid yourself and uh, there, there'd also be cards like you know uh, put away that pea shooter uh go back two desks or uh uh, you have wonderful penmanship, you know, move ahead. Of, and I don't know if anybody has wonderful penmanship uh, <laughs> uh, anymore, uh, cursive. Uh, uh, Lou and I, this this last weekend, um, uh, helped uh, uh, do uh, some Disney he- history presentations for uh, a wonderful group from uh, Buena Vista University in Storm Lake City, Iowa. 
and uh, one of one of them uh, who is uh, twenty uh, said, uh, "Yeah, uh, uh, the teacher wanted me to write this out," and I said. Why do I have to write it out? I'm never going to use cursive. I'm never going to use cursive in my life. My my seven year old son yeah. is doing penmanship now, and he said the same thing. He says, "Daddy, everybody types everything. Why do I need to write?" Yes, I said, "You're right, kid. Just get the homework done." <laughs> and uh, there are other games like Tell It to the Judge, uh, which was uh, uh, you, you'll see when you come in. They have it out uh, on display uh, again. 1936 game and uh, Eddie Canner. Uh, uh, banjo-wise, uh, again, a, a very, very popular entertainer, completely forgotten today. And and what's fascinating about this game, board game, is uh, you start with your car in your garage and you're going to the nightclub. But as you curve around, you're going to run into all sorts of uh, uh, problems like a flat tire or running a red light, and you're going to have to go tell it to the judge, you know, to get out of that, to keep moving a, a, ahead uh, uh, to do that, but uh, um, Lou, there's a very famous board game, isn't there, connected with with this resort? Yeah, fun times in the 30s, so you could either play a game where you went back to school and got in trouble, got in your car and had to go to the to police, or nobody likes anything more than buying and selling property. That's, that, that's the pinnacle of excitement, but it was back in... Uh, in the early 30s, when uh, Charles Darrow came up with this idea for a game called mm-hmm. Monopoly, mm-hmm. which was about buying and selling property, a game that he was unable to sell to Parker Brothers. They wanted nothing to do with it. So what does he do? A, I, I love the entrepreneurial spirit. He hand-makes 5,000 of them. And actually, there was a, a fascinating documentary on CNBC about the history of Monopoly, showing how these were made by hand. And actually, the, the original board was not a square, but it was a circle, sort of a hub and a spoke that you sort of went around in, in a circle. Um, and as we were saying, he eventually sold it to Parker. He sold 5,000 the first year. He sells it to Parker Brothers next year, and they're selling you know, 20,000 a year. Uh, they can't keep them on the shelves. But it sort of perfectly fits in, obviously, because the idea of uh, Monopoly came from the streets of Atlantic City, this this glamorous, very prestigious, very upscale sort of vacation place. He wanted to bring that to sort of that post-depression era. Right. Places like uh, uh, Reading Railroad, the Short Line, all of those were uh, in uh, uh, Atlantic City. And, of course, you know, the prime piece of property, the boardwalk, <laughs> uh, to do that. But, uh, uh, Lou, we were talking about this and, and the documentary that you uh, – uh, saw there was actually a mistake on the original Monopoly game because, of course, Darrow was doing this by by hand. Maybe it was in cursive. Maybe that's where the mistake came from. There was a mistake on the game that lasted for decades. Parker Brothers uh, uh, apologized for it just a couple of years ago. What was that mistake on the Monopoly game, Lou? So, I, again, it was a Jim Crocus moment. I never realized that Marvin Gardens was spelled incorrectly. Right. Uh, on the game, it was spelled with an I, but in Atlantic City, it was spelled with an E. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, and so that's how popular Atlantic City was that you have an entire game based on it and how many generations have, have played that game and, and not realized that it related to that. Also in the Bellevue Lounge, you'll see uh, an awful lot of uh, radios uh, from the 30s. These are authentic radios. At least the exterior facade is is authentic. The, the interiors have uh, uh, gone through um, uh, some rewiring because... Uh, 
uh, during parts of the day, you can sit here in the Bellevue Lounge and you can hear radio shows from the 30s and the 40s, something I just absolutely love. It's, it's one of those sort of unexpected hidden treasures, I think, of the Bellevue Lounge, which is actually one of my favorite places just to sort of sit with friends and get away. There's a, there's a bar here. There's no food like a lot of the other lounges. This is what sort of makes this one unique. But it is a, a great place whether you want an iced tea or something more mm-hmm. adult-oriented. But And if you come here during the holidays, the broadcast changes well, too. They're holiday-themed broadcasts, again, that are authentic to the period. And th- there's all sorts of authentic... Um a memorabilia in here too a, a, a brownie camera a magic lantern uh, there's there's little uh, 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 games there's a stereopticon up on a on an upper shelf you know uh, again I wish I could just take some of those things uh, <laughs> uh, home with me but um, Walt Disney Imagineering had an outside company look and obtain many of those uh, artifacts uh, uh, for here but again once again because they are so real to that time period, people just bypass them. You know, even taking a look at the books on the shelves, you see that, of course, they are books that were popular and published during the 20s and the 30s. They don't go be, go beyond that. I, I know that on, on some w- websites they talk about uh, uh, the boardwalk being turn of the century, and there's some turn of the century elements, but... What it is is it's the 1920s and those things are, are still around from the turn of the century. It isn't the turn of the century. I've heard uh, some websites go, oh, well, it's the 40s. Well, it was the 40s. We'd have elements of uh, the war, and, and we don't. This is, this is one of those very comfortable periods. Of course, it's the Great Depression, but it's not happening here in Atlantic City. Yeah, I think the, the, Bellevue, <clears throat> the Bellevue Lounge really is such a wonderful snapshot in time from the period. It's things that you would have seen, even from the, the sconces and the chandeliers and the furniture, that, that sort of wicker with, that, with, the plaid, uh, with the plaid cushions on it. It's a snapshot in time from the, early, you know, from the Northeast Atlantic, from this Atlantic uh, city sort of era. But uh, Jim, I think that really goes to the idea of it's not just about individual details that are put together. It's about the connecting the dots, the, the cohesiveness of the story that I think happens in sort of multiple chapters. Like you say, when you sort of walk into that lot, look, when you approach and you see the, the white popcorn lights on the sign that says Boardwalk and you walk into that lobby, the story is already being told. It's being set for you. And as soon as you pass through that entranceway, the first thing that we see really helps to sort of bring it all together. And it's this incredibly beautiful, detailed, authentic miniature carousel. Yes. Uh, And not just a miniature carousel, an authentic (laughs) miniature carousel, and an authentic miniature carousel done by um, uh, Marcus Charles... and I hope I, Ilians, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hope I pronounced that last name uh, uh, correctly. And his nickname, by the way, was Mike. So sometimes you'll see Mike Ilians out there. That that was uh, millions. They just call him millions. Yeah, well, because <laughs> and, and and again, because he was an immigrant, and you want to get you know an Americanized name. And um, he was one of. He is still considered today one of the two master carvers of uh, carousels, and especially carousel. Uh, uh, horses, and in fact, uh, he he actually worked for the master carver before he went off and 
and, and started on, on his own. And he was a, a master uh, horseman. He owned several horses of his own. So he was very intimately knowledgeable about um, uh, equine anatomy and even facial veins, uh, things like this. So uh, his horses just seemed so alive and just, you know, reached out. What happened is... Um, uh, carousel started to f- fall out of favor for a while, and also there were mass production techniques that came in, and MC just would not uh, put up with that. So he started his own company and proposed to create um, Supreme Carousels. And, but in order to sell people on that idea, he came up with this model, this miniature model, and he hand carved. Each of the horses, there are 44 horses on this. Uh, all of them are four inches tall. All of them hand-carved. None of them identical. So they're each unique. And he's putting this together as a sales tool that he can take out because it actually works. The horses go up and down and all this. So he can take uh, and he can convince people that they should invest in building these supreme carousels. Uh, three Supreme Carousels um, were built. None of them exist today simply because individual parts of a carousel are more valuable than the carousel as a whole. And so uh, an individual carousel horse can easily sell for uh, $500,000 or more. Um, but this was uh, not meant, this little miniature was never meant to be seen by the, the, the public. It was just a little sales de- device and um, that he, he took around to, to get investors. And uh, uh, it's, it was locked away for 80 years, in a, uh, you know, until the, the Disney company uh, bought it in 1995. And, you know, we can't stress enough, you know, when you think about something that's created as a sales tool, you think that it's sort of a, uh, a small-scale mock-up of something just to, show, just to illustrate maybe the mechanics of the carousel. I'll take a couple of pictures, but, Jim, I can't stress enough that people need to come and see just how detailed this really is. And obviously when Imagineering purchase it, they not just – they don't just restore it uh, to the way the, it originally looked. They go through painstaking re- research, as they always do, to make sure that the colors are authentic, that the, the saddles are made of real leather, the, 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 little, um, the, the little stirrups are, mm-hmm. are made of leather. They recreate the sort of pinhead light bulbs, you know, hundreds and hundreds around there. They add brass. There's gold leaf. Uh, they make sure the speed of the carousel is authentic, so much so that it matches the speed, if it was real size, of King Arthur Carousel in Disneyland. But it is, it truly is a work of art. I mean, it's something that we are grateful that was rescued from obscurity mm-hmm. or destruction. And, and, and again, what I've always said is when the Disney company does something right, they really do it right. And uh, you, were, you were pointing out the, the intensive restoration that they did. It, it took over a, a, a year because uh, they, they literally went out and looked at uh, carousels that MC had, had worked on uh, to take a look at, at, at color schemes. You know, what type of colors did he use and how did this blend this way and, and all of that because, uh, uh, you know, to incorporate uh, into this and, and – Yes, the the replating of the brass, the 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 gold leaf, the 
the uh, uh, attention uh, to detail. So this is just magnificent. This, this is the way that it would have looked when, when he was uh, uh, showing it around, uh, roughly uh, around 1912, 1915 is the, is the, the guess on, on, on this, um, except with one major difference. Uh, what they did uh, with that wonderful sense of humor that, that Disney has, uh, if you take a look at the blue and green chariot, the chariot is the, the little uh, uh, bench area that people could sit on rather than ride a horse. If you look up about two horses ahead of that chariot on the outer uh, uh, ring, there's a horse and he is covered with hidden Mickeys. I don't know if you could really call them hidden Mickeys because you can see them so clearly. Uh, you won't miss them. Uh, and, uh, but if you really want to be challenged, there's another horse uh, with, uh, with those same hidden Mickeys that's on an inner ring that's uh, uh, further, further away from that. Um, but yes, beautifully done. It, it still operates. And so every 20 to 23 minutes or so, uh, it'll go, and the horses actually go up and down. Now, the music you hear will not be music from the 20s and 30s. You'll actually hear uh, uh, Disney music, which I, I think is, is completely appropriate. And uh, talking about Disney doing things uh, right, um, just in case you don't happen to have Lou and I around with you and you're trying to remember all of this information, some of this information is on a nice little uh, white plaque that they, they have on a pillar uh, next uh, next to the carousel there. Yeah, and as you said, I, I think the most fascinating thing about the carousel is not just the true craftsmanship that was put into it, but the fact that it still works. A hundred years later, it still works. And uh, again, I think you need to sort of see it to really appreciate it. But, you know, beyond that, Jim, when you walk in, and I say this all the time, especially in Walt Disney World, we, we're trained as we walk into a place, we look around, we look down, we look at some of the details we see, so often we never look up. Uh, I, there are people I take through Magic Kingdom all the time that I'll walk into the expansion of the Emporium uh, where East Center Street, West Center Street used to be, and I have them look up and nobody realizes that gigantic, beautiful, elegant chandelier that sits there. I think here, too, you need to take a moment as you walk in and look up at the Hippocantris, Hippocampus Electrolier <laughs> chandelier. You can't miss it. It may be the biggest chandelier literally on the planet. Yeah, you also mentioned that isn't it amazing that after a hundred years that I'm hoping after a hundred years I'll still work as well as that little miniature carousel. Uh, yeah, hippocampus. And uh, uh, for those of you who are not paying attention in school, uh, hippocampus is actually from Greek mythology, and uh, it was a uh, sea monster type uh, uh, creature where uh, uh, the front of it was uh, a horse. And the, the back end was a, a fish-like, a, a fish tail, uh, whatever. Quite literally, a seahorse. And, of course, the hippocampus was what would pull the chariot for Poseidon. Uh, and, in fact, there's a lot of Poseidon statues that will have a hippocampus with it. And for those of you who are um, into the uh, medical uh, range, hippocampus is actually part of your brain. But the, it's in a shape that looks like the normal seahorse that, 
that we see. So, uh, see, mom and dad, you should let kids listen to Lou's <laughs> podcast because this is the way they should be getting uh, their education. We say this all the time. There are so many educational opportunities here at Walt Disney World. This is how I justified my parents pulling me out of school. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it weighs uh, uh, 3,000 uh, pounds. It's covered in 22-carat uh, uh, gold leaf. It has Austrian uh, crystal on it. You've got uh, uh, some cupids uh, on there. And, and, again, this is very much in, in the style of, of uh, MC and, and what would um, – uh, you know uh, what would be on carousels or in amusement parks like like a uh, uh, Coney Island and and Lou, do you know why it's called an electrolier? Right, because weren't the electroliers? They were designed for the electric lamps as opposed to candles or gas bulbs. Absolutely. So electrolier is uh, synonymous with basically what we know today as chandeliers. And it was, it was a name that was used that just didn't catch on. And my understanding is that it was uh, Thomas Edison who came up with uh, uh, the name because, again, he was trying to promote electricity. But, uh, you know, it, you can call something whatever you want to call it. People will still call it what they want to call it. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the you know the the thing that's look it's magnificent and it's beautiful. But what I love about this too is that for many years, and we realize it's not the, the way it is now. There was also literally a piece of Walt Disney World history, again literally attached to the hippocampus chandelier. Because if you look on the bottom, there is a a crystal globe that's hanging from there, sort of with a, a gold finial on the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's empty now, but at one point, it was actually a time capsule. It was filled with uh, sand and uh, elements that were put in there that were meant to be open for Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary, which, believe it or not, is coming up faster than, than I yeah. can imagine. Uh, but there was a problem with the globe, uh, whether it, it leaked or it broke, whatever it may be. The globe now sits empty and... Like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm sure the time capsule is somewhere safe in a giant warehouse somewhere. Uh, a long way. <laughs> uh, so many other treasures. Uh, uh, yes, we, we uh, both Lou and I have gotten uh, uh, contradictory explanations, but the bottom line is something was wrong with the globe. And so the time capsule had to be uh, uh, saved and preserved uh, uh, elsewhere. But there is a globe underneath that uh, now and and you know I, we jumped ahead to the uh, um, that area with the uh, uh, carousel along the way. I hope you guys stopped in the uh, restroom because <laughs> between the two restrooms is uh, a, a casting uh, from a, a sculpture that uh, MC uh, Illions uh, uh, did that would have been on a carousel in between the the mirrors. And um, so this is a fiber, this is a fiberglass casting, but it was it was hand painted. But it was cast from an actual um, 1910 element uh, from a carousel, and then right directly across from that is my baby, is my <laughs> baby Lou. You know what I'm talking about, right? You you know he looks just like his father too. <laughs> yeah, because as you start to when you walk into the lobby, and we'll talk a little bit more about what's on the left hand side as well. But if you start walking to the right. Uh, towards the hotel side and, and where the Bellevue Lounge is. And we, we noticed how many people walked by, right. all the things that we're talking about. But across from the restrooms on the left-hand side, you can look out 
over uh, the courtyard and the promenade overlooking Crescent Lake. Uh, but you can also see there a mutoscope, a clamshell mutoscope, but one of two that used to be here, and many of us who, and we shed a silent tear when we think about the Penny Arcade on Main Street USA, remember those from originally being on Main Street. But you have a great story about sort of how that clamshell mutoscope went from Main Street USA eventually here. And, and you, you're just going to make me cry again, Lou. You're going to make me cry again, but, that, but that's okay. I'll, I'll do that because you're a friend and, and, and people need to know. The world needs to know. I need to let people know this. Um, the Penny Arcade on uh, Main Street at Walt Disney World uh, closed in uh, 1995. And, and I personally feel that that is a tremendous uh, uh, loss. And especially because many of the items in the Penny Arcade were authentic. Uh, some came from the Disneyland uh, uh, collection. Uh, when uh, Magic Kingdom opened in 71, they, they got some from there. But Walt Disney World bought some of their own a, a, as well. These were all authentic, working uh, pieces, whether it was the orchestron, which is uh, the, the music boxes or the mutoscopes or some of the arcade games or uh, to see how strong you are or the love tester or wh- whatever those things were. So 1995, that close. In 1996, um, I had been working at um, uh, Magic Kingdom as a, as a friend of Merlin the Magician. And in 1996, I'd been hired as an animation instructor at the uh, brand new Disney Institute that was going to be opening shortly. And one of the classes that I had to create for the Disney Institute was called Animated Beginnings. Maybe some of you listening uh, uh, took that class, and it was the history of animation. And so I I would teach guests how to make a thaumatrope, which is that round circle which has an image on one side like a bird, and on the other side it has a cage. And then when you, you twist it back and forth, the two images blend together, so you have a bird in a cage. I, I taught uh, guests how to do zoetrope uh, strips, all of that. But I went to my manager and I said, you know, they've closed the Penny Arcade. What did they do with the mutoscope machines? Maybe this would be a good thing to have over in the classroom. And, of course, since the Disney Institute w- was just being built, when something is just being built, somehow there always seems to be money. After it opens, there's no money at all. But uh, right before it opens, it seems like people are uh, – you can get money from some budget somewhere or whatever. And so my, my manager, uh, Larry Laurie, and I uh, called around, and we made connections because, again – Disney is different departments, different divisions. So you have to buy from another division something, and so it was determined that yes, they they at currently they were uh, storing the mutoscopes. Although eventually they would sell those those off, um, they were storing them. And so I went underneath uh, the utilidors, and I'd been through the utilidors before because I'd worked at Magic Kingdom. But this was a section of the utilidor. Uh, that I was completely unfamiliar with, and there was this one guy, and he was the one guy who was in charge of uh, all of the uh, devices, the uh, the mutoscopes and the music boxes. And all, only one guy, and and after they closed the Penny Arcade, he went to uh, to work on the parade floats, and uh, so he opened the, this door into this little dingy room that I didn't even know was there, and it was leaking because it was underneath the moat. 
And so here are all of these beautiful mutoscopes, uh, some of them metal, some of them wood, whatever, and, and it, it, it was like somebody's messy attic. Things had been piled on top of each other or shoved at the side or what, whatever, and there, there was a, 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 an unlocked cabinet that w- w- was halfway open. And so uh, he and I went through looking uh, to try and get uh, uh, ones that were in the best shape. So we got one that was painted green, one that was painted red. And I, he says, and what do you want these things for? I don't, and, and I said, well, we're teaching animation and all that. And he says, well, we don't have a lot of, you know, animation roles. They're like a, a Rolodex role. And he says, you know, usually people wanted to see the live action stuff. And I said, well, even if you got the live action stuff, we can explain persistence of vision, all of this. He says, no, 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 wait a second. So he opens up uh, this cabinet, and it's piled with with paper, and it's piled with some of these rolls and things like this. And he reaches in the back, and he pulls out, and he pulls out this paper box, and he opens the paper box, and in there is this pristine roll all these 850 opaque cards, opaque cards, and it's Felix the Cat. Felix the Cat. Because Felix the Cat was a silent uh, uh, movie star, and this was a section of a Felix the Cat cartoon um, from uh, 1919. And you know why Felix is important in Disney history, right, Lou? You know, by the way, first of all, you know that the only people that recognize the name Felix the Cat are you, I, and like one other person. Um, but at, but at, for a time, Felix the Cat was very popular. But yeah, you sort of enlightened me as sort of the Felix the Cat Disney connection. Yeah, uh, and again, Felix the Cat was the most popular cartoon character before Mickey Mouse uh, made the scene. And he was in a lot of uh, silent uh, cartoons and... Um, uh, he was owned by uh, Pat Sullivan. Pat Sullivan uh, w- was doing this. And as I was explaining to Lou, the Disney connection is that the Felix the Cat cartoons were being distributed by Margaret Winkler. And Margaret Winkler, the reason she bought the Alice comedies from Walt Disney, you know, and that's how Walt Disney started in, in animation, was not with Oswald, not with Mickey, but with the Alice comedies. And he sold it to, uh, in 1923, October 1923, uh, sold the series to Margaret Winkler. The reason she wanted Walt Disney was not because he was such a great artist, not because it was such a great idea to combine a little girl with animation, but because she was distributing the Felix the Cat cartoons and Pat Sullivan wanted more money. And so she wanted some leverage in case Pat Sullivan, you know, jumped ship and went and took Felix the Cat somewhere else. So... She bought the Alice comedies, but she insisted that Walt put in a black cat into the Alice comedies. That's where Julius the Cat comes from. So in case Pat Sullivan leaves, by golly, she's got a, 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 a animated cartoon series she can sell that's got this black cat that can, can do all of these, these crazy things. Well, things worked out with Pat Sullivan until... Margaret Winkler uh, married Charles Mintz, and not only did he upset uh, Walt Disney, he upset Pat Sullivan. So that's a whole other story. But thanks to thanks to Felix the Cat, we we got Walt Disney into animation. So anyway, I'm looking at this 1919, and it's oh my gosh, it's just beautiful. And he says, yeah, and I think we got a card here somewhere we can we can we can stick in there, and we'll look for something else. And so we're digging through and. Some of these rolls are falling apart and things like this. But he found another uh, 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 silent animation 
uh, card. And, and again, uh, even in those days, I was unable to identify the particular cartoon because there were hundreds of these made. Most of them don't exist anymore. Most of them were not uh, uh, familiar characters because, again, they were just a trick film. Just, you know, we'll run it, we'll run it for a couple of weeks, we'll run it around the country, and then that it, it's gone. It, it won't have any more, more use. So we got those and we brought them over uh, and he showed me how to fix the mutoscope because he was the only guy who could do it. There was only one key to open the mutoscope. And so there was only one key he could give me to, to use for, for both of these mutoscope here. here. So um, opened it up, and what he had done is he had jerry-rigged. He had taken a, uh, a paper clip, and he had unbent it, and he had hooked it around. And he says, and so over here with it, because they didn't make parts for mutoscopes anymore. And, and there's the little metal coin box, and it was a small thing. And he says... So you got to change this out because if it clogs up, then it's do this and it'll stop this, and you know the the hand crank won't. Go. Oh my gosh! Okay, so anyway, took it took these over, and uh, so for a couple of years they were over there at the uh, Disney Institute in the classroom. We had to have a bowl of pennies out there because guests just went crazy wanting to put those in and and go through and and, and on the crank you've you've got to crank it one way. If you stop or if you try to crank it in reverse, the light will go off or it'll stop because you're creating a, a tension with the cards uh, g- going through this. And um, then the Disney Institute just kept getting smaller and smaller. At one point, the animation classes were being done over in the uh, culinary uh, classroom. So the mutoscopes were mute, moved over there because they also had a design studio that they could uh, reconfigure, you know, for, for animation. And then, of course, when the Disney Institute... Uh, became so successful that it could not be in one particular location and uh, closed down where now Saratoga Springs are, the mutoscopes just disappeared. And I thought, Jim, how foolish you are that you are so honest. You, you, at any time, you could have just slid that into the back seat of your car and, and taken it home and, and cared for it and, and, and brought it up to puberty, you know, because uh, it's over 100 years old, for crying out loud. And um, then uh, one day, I, I was over here at the boardwalk, and I walked, and there's my two babies. There's the, there's the green one, there's the red one, cat in a bag, uh, Felix cat, and I, I put in the penny, and the thing just wouldn't move. The, the crank would move, and it's plugged in and all that, and I put in the penny, and, and I said, oh, I can fix this, and I reach it. <laughs> I don't have the key anymore. I can't open this up. Uh, <laughs> But uh, that is here now. My, my baby is here, and it survives. And um, this is a mutoscope um, uh, from the, uh, that was made sometime between the 1880s and uh, 1920. And the reason I know that is if you take a look at the, the metal um, uh, in, in scripture on, on there, you'll see it's from um, the American Mutoscope Company, and they only made mutoscopes up until the mid-20s. And then in uh, 26, I believe it was, from 26 to 49, it was the International Mutoscope Company. So here's something that is, you know, oh my gosh, you know, 100 years old, and this really still works, come on. <laughs> but people just walking right by it. But they used to have that, and they also used to have, I think they used to have another one which was, and, and your listeners will, will tell me whether I'm, I'm right or wrong, uh, there was a, a, one that was white and uh, had gold mm-hmm. um, uh, detailing, but I could tell that the interior had been gutted. 
This one, I looked in again today, and I know where to look, and I could see the light bulb is still in It wants in there. to work. You can tell it's close. It, it, like, it, it wants does. to work. It says, Jim, Jim, <laughs> fix me, fix me, fix me, Jim. Uh, and uh, so, but, but again, I'm glad it's here. I'm glad it's inside. I'm glad it's not in a little dripping room. Uh, and um, so so this, this is a... Uh, this is a, a, a memory, uh, and I know that this one also came from uh, Disneyland because the guy who uh, did this pointed out, you know, which ones had come from Disneyland's Penny Arcade because Disneyland had bought more than they needed. So um, this is actually a, uh, a mutoscope that was at, in uh, Disneyland in 1955 and then moved out to Magic Kingdom in 71 and then over to the Disney Institute, and now it's over here at the Boardwalk. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, you look sad. You look like you, you're feeling a little weak. You need a little bit of help. <laughs> so if you walk a little bit farther down the hallway by where the elevator bank are, mm-hmm. you can go use – well, you, you, if you were here in the 1920s, you would have been able to use the electricity machine. Mm-hmm. This was another one of those uh, penny arcade-style machines that was uh, not only a sort of a test of strength, but if you sort of turn the handles – uh, to get a little yeah, bit of, yeah. you get a sort of a little bit of health. It would give you a nerve and muscle massage, which would basically mean it would taser you. It was, <laughs> you would pay to be tasered. But yeah, that was look the same way that Sears sold the little jiggly machine to help you lose weight. This was sort of something that was supposed to give you a nerve and muscle masha- massage and make you healthier. Oh my. Well, it, 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 <laughs> yeah, an electric shock. And, and uh, I remember growing up uh, in California and going to Disneyland. And, yeah, they had those. And they, they had one where you could actually hold the two mm-hmm. metal things. And it would continue to build. So how long can you hold on? I think on? they still have one in Disneyland's mm-hmm. Penny Arcade. Okay. That, you know, but this one, unfortunately, I think... Is, is gutted because I, it no longer has the electrical cord. The mutoscope still has the electrical cord, <laughs> and it works, and it's plugged into the... But, but, but yet, I, w- I wish they had even more of those machines um, uh, in here because they're, they're, they're so much fun. But again, we, as we've been sitting here, we see people walking back and forth and, and not even paying attention because, again, they fit in with the time period. They're right. They seem right. And so, Jim, as we start to make our way back to the opposite side of the lobby, mm-hmm. past the uh, the carousel, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's the subtle little details, whether it's the, the, the mutoscopes or the artwork or the furniture, even things on the wall, right? Simple sort of artistic representations, whether they are authentic or created by imagining, helping to sort of complete the, the story. And even in the carpet, right? We're so used to seeing hidden Mickey's. There's also, you know, the little bit of Disney touch that's added to. Uh, yes, and and uh, you know, uh, of course, there's uh, hidden hidden Mickey's, and uh, uh, in the carpet, you, you'll find a, a little uh, a series of little uh, red circles around a, a, an oval. You'll find a, a hidden Mickey there, but if you look right to the side, you'll see little green pixie dust, and if you follow that little green pixie dust it'll curve around and by golly who do you see at the end of that pixie dust jim corcus ah that's it <laughs> absolutely i'm full of pixie well i'm full of something i think pixie dust is what it is actually you see tinkerbell and and so lou and i are, are, are just here to tell uh, steve barrett to get his act together you know uh you've you've written enough hidden mickey books you need to start writing some books about where the hidden donalds are and the tinkerbells and the goofies and 
and, and all of those. So, so Steve, you know, come on. I know you've got a couple of extra minutes during the day. Time for, an, time for another book. And as Lou was pointing out, on the walls and... Uh, some wonderful artwork. Again, some done by the Imagineers where they're uh, recreating uh, some of the images of uh, rides that were at uh, uh, Coney Island, specifically Luna Park. Uh, but you'll also see some uh, framed pieces of uh, artwork because, uh, again, in, in the 20s and 30s, photography was not really that common, especially in terms of promoting uh, a location. So sometimes you would uh, hire an artist and they'd... Uh, uh, they do little etchings or sketches or, or whatever uh, so that people could see, oh, look how much fun everybody is having. We need to go there as well. And uh, uh, fortunately, uh, uh, as I said, one of the things that I really love they have here at the boardwalk is they, they have these little um, white uh, uh, rectangles that uh, have some information so uh, you can learn some more additional things because... Uh, as much as uh, Lou and I love to talk, we love the sound of our own voices, we, we can only get uh, sometimes just the, the tip of uh, uh, the iceberg. And, and part of the fun is for you to come down and, and discover some of these things on your own and, and discover some of the things that uh, we didn't have time to, to, to talk about because we are running out of time, so we've got to go uh, into, the, in, into the lobby as well and Again, isn't this a magnificent lobby, Lou? Just look at this and, and the lighting overhead. Well, I, I want to quickly go back yeah. to your point about the uh, the white placards because it's not yeah. something you find everywhere, right? We talk about it all the time that there is no great big book of Imagineering. There is no one place that you can go to, sort of the, the Bible of all the details. Mm-hmm. We We do these things not because we're trying to explain every single thing, but we want to sort of give you the introduction and make you come and explore and learn more on your own. And that's what those placards help you do, but they don't exist everywhere. And I, and I like the fact that they do exist here because whether you are the casual guest walking by or you are somebody really looking to sort of dig down into the layers of the onion, you are able to find something that's here all the time, not maybe the one cast member or a couple of cast members that know the deep details of the story. Uh, so I, I, I like the fact that they're here. I'd love to see more of those elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, especially in places we see them in, in Animal Kingdom Lodge and a lobby uh, mm-hmm. there as well too. But yeah, going back mm-hmm. into sort of the check-in area of uh, the lobby, let's actually start over at the check-in desk itself because speaking of artwork, there you, again, you're not just finding representations of Coney Island, Luna Park, Atlantic City, but there's the Disney touch in there as well too because behind the check-in desk you can find representations of the castles of Disneyland, Disneyland Paris. Right, and and uh, those are actually right above the registration uh, desk, and you see those frames there, uh, and, and I've seen it described on, on websites and all that. Oh, yes, uh, gold frames. They don't seem to realize. You just saw the carousel. You should see those are called rounding boards. Those would be on the exterior of a, um, a, a carousel, and again, traditionally, it would uh, depict a pastoral s- setting. So that's why, why you're having this outdoor setting in, in these paintings here. And as, as Lou pointed out, as you go from left to right, you're going uh, uh, from uh, Disneyland's castle to uh, uh, Disneyland Paris's castle to uh, uh, Walt Disney World's castle. And if they don't look exactly like the Disney castles, it's because the D- Disney Imagineers are trying to paint in the style of the 1920s, 1930s, and what those castles would really look like in a real-life setting. And for those who say, well, where's 
Hong Kong, uh, uh, where's Tokyo Disneyland? Where's Hong Kong Disneyland? Well, uh, Tokyo Disneyland is the same as Walt Disney World, so you're going with that. But, you know, some of these parks didn't open, you know, when uh, uh, this opened. And, of course, in the, uh, uh, the center one, the Disneyland Paris one, if you look down to the right in the bushes... Maybe you'll see a, a hidden Mickey, you know, buy Steve Barrett's book, go to his website, and you can double-check, but uh, but that is there. And, uh, yeah, but a magnificent open lobby here, too. Love that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that really is that visual magnet, that weenie, as Walt would call, that draws people into the lobby, especially if maybe you're waiting to check in, is the plexiglass case that has a reproduction of the old flip-flap railway. This this roller coaster from Luna Park um, mm-hmm. out in Coney Island, which is you you look at it and you wonder if this sort of is a a, um, a scale model. Is it a replica? This is actually it's a model of something that existed there for a very short amount of time, but actually the coaster existed many years after. Uh, yes, uh, and and again, this is unlike the carousel. This is not a uh, um, an, an authentic uh, miniature from the time period. This, w- this was, uh, uh, you know, recreated, but it was recreated in that style. So when you see the figures and all of that. And the flip-flap uh, uh, railway was uh, what is usually considered as the first uh, inverted uh, coaster because you're doing the, the uh, loop. But uh, it really isn't the loop that we're used to on coasters today that... Uh, I, I know very little uh, uh, about physics, or, or I'd be making a fortune today. I, I just know uh, uh, history. This really is a, a circle, 25 feet of, of going through a circle. And what happened is, is that creates an awful lot of G-forces. In fact, it creates a, about 12 Gs. Now, t- to put that in, in perspective, because, you know, how many Gs is, is, do you need? Uh, what, what, uh, mission space... Um, uh, generates about uh, two and a half G's uh, for 45 seconds. Uh, if, if you were up in an airplane and doing acrobatics, you're up to about, you know, five to seven G's. If you're with the Blue Angels and, and doing at supersonic speed, all of these uh, amazing twists and turns, uh, you're up to about nine, maybe to 11 G's. Here, you got 12 G's on this ride. <laughs> You're having guests that are passing out. You're having guests that are having whiplash. So, so yes, it, it was at Luna Park at Coney Island for a year, and they thought, oh, we got to get rid of this. And so, of course, they got rid of it. And who picked it up? Atlantic City. Atlantic City picked it up. And so from 1902 to uh, 1912, they were abusing guests uh, <laughs> on this. And, and you have to realize, too, that... Um, uh, entertainment w- was different, so you might pay a dime to ride on this railway. Uh, they were also charging people a dime to stand at the bottom of the loop to see if anybody fell out. Because again, you're, you're not having safety bars, you're not having seat belts, and they might pass out. Money might fall out of people's pockets down there, so you pay a dime uh, to see this. Um, and there, there's uh, also a uh, photo up on on the wall from 1910. Um, so, so that's the uh, uh, flip-flap from uh, Atlantic, uh, Atlantic City. 
so you can see what that uh, looked like. Uh, fun was much different in in, in, in in the older days than it the, is. The, the loop looked, the, the first time I saw it, yeah. the first thing I thought about was my old Hot Wheels track as a mm-hmm. kid. It's that same sort of thing that your car goes in, not what we see today in rock and roller coaster or a traditional sort of loop. And you wonder how, first of all, how it got past the lawyers. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, how were people not getting flung out of this uh, other than the centrifugal force keeping them in their seats. And and that was basically that and fear. <laughs> that and fear, you know. Uh, I, I know there are even uh, some friends who ride uh, some attractions at, at Disney and, you know, we talk about, well, you should look up and look at the side. They, they have only seen the bottom of their feet on some <laughs> rides because they are holding on so tightly, uh, you know, for, for that uh, uh, surprise. Uh, but again, you know... Uh, this was just amazing uh, uh, for people because there was nothing else like it. And, and, and that was true of, of so many of, of the attractions, whether it was uh, water shoot rides or uh, uh, whatever, you know. It, it was like, oh, my gosh, you know. And, and once you were in an amusement park, it was in a uh, temporary reality. You were in a, a different world than the one that you, you were used to. So... Rules were different and all of that. But, you know, even with the Hot Wheels track you were talking about, that, that's more of an oval mm. rather than a, a, a circle. And uh, earlier you were also talking about, you know, d- did you want it to look too carny on the boardwalk? They do have the midway games there. One of the things I like about the hoops game is that the hoops are legitimate. They, re- <laughs> they really are a, a circle. If you go to a carnival, one of the things they'll do is it'll be an oval hoop. And so you have to hit it the exact right spot. You can't just hit into the basket. It has to be the right spot of the basket for the ball to go through. So I will, I will say, because uh, um, I'm a carny. I, 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 I used to work the Midway Games at uh, uh, Six Flags uh, uh, Magic Mountain out in Valencia, California. And so I realized that if you, you stood on one side and you try and and, and toss something, it won't go. But if you're on, on the side where the barker is and he tosses it, just because of the angle, just <laughs> again, it goes right on. And it, it, it really does come down to, to physics and metaphysics and, and, and all this. Uh, I, I, I will tell you from personal experience, the games here at, at, on the, uh, uh, the midway at the boardwalk, absolutely accurate absolutely fine so at least they're not recreating that aspect uh, of it and thank heavens they're not recreating the aspect of the flip-flap railroad i I don't think we would even want to see that today well when you talk about the flip-flap you used words like scary and fear and things you've never seen before there's something else in the lobby that fits that exact description and those are the two (laughs) chairs on the opposite side of the fireplace I will tell you, uh, as someone who's not all that fond of clowns, mm-hmm. that these are very unique. Uh, they almost look like chairs for children, but they're actually called nanny chairs. Uh, they are something that came from the old sort of uh, 18th, 19th century carousels in Europe. Uh, and they, um, if, a, if a parent wanted to ride, maybe they didn't want to sort of hop up in their in their uh, in their dress onto a moving horse, they could sit in one of these chairs that wouldn't move along the carousel. I can tell you, though, Jim Corcus, I'm sure I'm not the only guy who thinks they're a a little bit scary. The reproductions, they were cast from the originals, um, hand-painted. They're they're 
beautiful in terms of the hand carving, the painting, but the faces are a little bit creepy. Well, and see, there, there you go again with the, uh, uh, you know, how an interpretation is better. <laughs> Just because something existed at that time doesn't mean it's pleasant, doesn't mean you want to I- experience it. And, and yes, the, these were um, uh, cast from uh, original chairs from 1889. And no, you won't find that on... Uh, uh, on the signage uh, here, I think they just say 1800s on on the signage. So that's why you should still always listen to a Lou Mangello podcast because you're getting more. And yes, it, it it's uh, uh, gold leaf, and yes, they are tremendously uh, scary. They they almost look like <laughs> screaming little kids, you know, that that you're sitting on. And uh, yes, as Lou pointed out, they they were often used on on a carousel, and uh, many people believe that this is what. Um, uh, sparked um, the chariots on on a carousel, which were those uh, benches where where people could sit. But the nanny chairs were also used um, so that uh, people could sit when kids were um, they were mobile because they're chairs. You can pick them up and, and do so. You could sit next to some other ride that only a kid uh, uh, could be on. And again, they were called nanny chairs because. Primarily, it was the nannies who were taking care of, of, of the kids, not the, not the, uh, the parents. And, and one little uh, fun thing that uh, Lou and I had fun with uh, uh, as we were looking at these uh, earlier this morning, and, and so this is how you can, can show off uh, to your friends and family because you listen to these uh, podcasts so that you can be the expert, for, uh, you know, the Disney expert for your friends and family, and that's fine because it's just important to pass along the stories. Nobody says, oh, did you hear that from Lou and Jim? <laughs> uh, pull the chair a little away from the wall and look on the back because the Imagineers, and heaven only knows what was going through their minds, they put their names on the chair. <laughs> so if you pull away uh, one of the chairs, it'll say Todd, and the other chair will say Paul. Those were the two Imagineers who worked on recasting and, and, and hand-painting these. But yes, they are tremendously uh, <laughs> scary. But yes, they are historic. But they're certainly a, a, a conversation starter. And, and I notice, you know, a lot of people in the lobby, and they're sitting in chairs. Nobody comes and sits You're in right. these Nobody's chairs. Sitting on Nobody chairs sits right there. <laughs> <laughs> it almost is like keep away from the fireplace. And these are the two minions that we have guarding uh, the threshold. So I want to sort of finish off uh, with the last detail. And really sort of bring it full circle Mm -hmm. for me, because one of the other conversation pieces in there, uh, which is just sort of out of arm's length, is something that I remember going to visit as a child, not in Atlantic City, but nearby in the town of Margate. And it's Lucy. And Lucy isn't a girl, because I didn't date much very much back then, but Lucy (laughs) is an elephant, and not a real elephant but a giant wood elephant that was sort of used as a promotional tool for uh, to sell real estate and things like that. Uh, to, to talk a little about Lucy and her her sister in Coney Island. <laughs> yeah, actually, she has uh, two sisters, but that's it. Yes, right right over the uh, fireplace, you'll you'll see uh, a model of uh, uh, an elephant. And uh, this, is, this is Lucy, and, and the trunk is in, in the bucket. But here's something you probably never even occurred to you, uh, Lou, uh, and, and this can be for listeners too. When you stand there and you look at that model and you go, yes, this is Lucy the elephant, there's something immediately you should say, 
this is entirely wrong. It's, it's just like uh, uh, Donald Duck is entirely wrong because Duck is a um, female name. Uh, uh, for, for, for male, it's a Drake, so it should be Donald Drake <laughs> instead of Donald Duck. So you're taking a look at Lucy, and, 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 I, and I can see you tipping your head, Lou, like, you know, like when I talk to a dog, and, you know, <laughs> yes, we're not going out. What, what? <laughs> tipping the head and all of this. This is Lucy. This is a girl. It's she a male elephant. has tusks. Male elephant. And, and by the size of the ears, you can also tell it's an Asian elephant. Well, believe it or not, there was this uh, 25-year-old guy uh, by the name of uh, James uh, Lafferty, and uh, he really wanted to get in, into real estate. But he, he, he thought, you know, if I, I've got to build something iconic to catch people's uh, attention in order to sell real estate. So working with an architect, he came up with a design to build an animal-shaped building. And in fact, this was so unique, had never been done before. We talk about California crazy architecture at Disney Hollywood. This had never been done before. So, so he went and he actually got a patent. So only he was allowed to build animal-shaped buildings for 17 years. So he built Lucy. Lucy was about uh, 65 feet uh, 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 tall. And uh, believe it or not, it is so tall, it can be seen uh, eight miles out to sea. Uh, so uh, originally, it, w- it was a place where, where people would come and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, be sold real estate in, in, in the nearby area. Because uh, when Lucy was built, you, you can see early pictures. There's, there's uh, nothing uh, around there. And then over the years, um, uh, uh, she was used for a variety of things. Uh, she was short-lived as a as a hotel, as a, as a, a private residence, as a as a souvenir shop. Uh, at one time, um, uh, believe it or not, in into the twenties, uh, she was a, a tavern. She sold beer, and she was one of the last uh, um, uh, beer uh, taverns to close down when. Uh, when prohibition came to effect, and she immediately started serving beer again when <laughs> prohibition was uh, uh, repealed. Uh, it inspired a. Um, she was so popular, so iconic. People would want to take pictures, even to to this day. People get married in there. People get uh, people propose in there. Whatever. Right. She's still there. Yeah. She's, she's, right. She she survived Hurricane Sandy. The the water apparently came up to her toenails, but that was about it. Um, so the next one that Lafferty built was in Coney Island, uh, and uh, this was called the uh, Elephant Colossus, or the Colossal Elephant, and uh, this was 125 feet tall. But again, this is built out of wood with uh, tin sheeting, and at Coney Island, as happened with a lot of the Coney Island uh, theme parks, it caught fire, burned down, and, and, and it, it, they did an illustration on the cover of a Newspaper, you know, beloved icon, you know, burns to death uh, over that. And then there was a third uh, called Taste of Asia, who that was smaller than Lucy, and that was over in uh, Cape May. Now, um, Lucy, of course, as Lou was telling you, was Margate, New Jersey. Margate was not always called Margate; it was uh, called South Atlantic City. So that's uh, it's right there. Atlantic City. So you went to the boardwalk, and you went over, and uh, and you went to uh, to see Lucy. 
And uh, Lou and I ha- ha- have been debating because, you know, p- people tell you things and, and you want to check them out. You know, it's not that they're necessarily wrong, but you want to check them out. And so somebody had uh, uh, said to me, that's, that's Mary Poppins up there in, in, in the uh, lighted window. And I just don't buy that as a Mary Poppin, Poppins uh, reference. The Tinkerbell reference, very clear. Mary Poppins, I just don't know. Yeah, but, we, we looked at it, and yeah. it, it, you can see how somebody might want to interpret that. But to me, it looks like a woman in sort of one of the, lo- one of the, the large hats. And mm-hmm. if you look at the artwork here... You'll see people strolling on the boardwalk. They got, you know, when you went out, you got dressed not to go to the beach, but to sort of stroll and to see and be seen on the on the boardwalk. That is sort of the hat that I sort of imagine uh, that a woman would have worn. So, and Mary Poppins just she doesn't fit. She doesn't fit into the story of she would. I don't. From what I saw, she did not ever visit Atlantic City or Margate. And then again, when the casinos came, you never know. Well, you know, even Mary Poppins. What happens in Atlantic City stays in Atlantic City. Even Mary Poppins needs some. Some fun uh, every now and then. And in the howdah, which is, is the thing on top of the elephant, supposedly there's a hidden Mickey up there if, if you look. But, but again, I'm not a, a huge hidden Mickey fan, but I know many of you are, and, and, and good for you. And if that adds to your enjoyment of Disney, more power to you. Absolutely. So, Jim, you know, again, we covered a lot uh, in a very short, in a very small, relatively small space we cover a lot of incredible details that, again, not just set the stage for this 3D play that we're all a part of, but really help to tell a story. Tell a story of uh, a real place in American history or snapshot in time, that picture postcard. And I think the boardwalk is one of the finest examples. And we're, we're going to have to take some time to visit some of the other resorts and look at their hidden treasures and stories and details. Um, I will tell you that where we're sitting right here in the Bellevue Lounge is one of my favorite places, not just at the resort, but in all of Walt Disney World. I invite people to come down and look and listen and learn uh, on their own. Tell us, too, in the comments section. Come to this week's show notes. Come in the comments section. Tell us what you enjoy most about Disney's Boardwalk Resort. Also, tell us what you enjoy most about Jim Corcus. Is it Who's Afraid of Song of the South? Is it the revised Vault of Walt? I'm going to put links to both of those. We can purchase them on uh, in print format or on Kindle format uh, directly from Amazon in this week's show notes. And, of course, Jim, you know I love having you on. I've got to have you back because this is always a blast sort of um, – peeling back the layers of the onion. It's always fun with you, Lou. And, and, and again, it's always fun uh, sharing this information with, with your uh, uh, listeners. And, and I will tell you that both Lou and I just get a big smile on our face when, when you come up to us and, and, and say, hey, you know, we, we love hearing you on, on uh, uh, the podcast and we love learning a, a, about these things. And, and please make sure you go out and share those stories with others because, as Lou keeps pointing out, there is no big book of Imagineering. I wish there was. Uh, and uh, a lot of these stories, a lot of this information is, is getting lost or, or is getting um, uh, uh, con- confused and, and, and twisted around. And so, so it's, it's up to us to, to keep the, the, the stories uh, alive. And, yeah, I, I hope we'll get a chance to, to talk more about Boardwalk because there's so many stories to tell about uh, Luna Park and uh, even some of those uh, shops down on the boardwalk uh, itself. And thanks for plugging Who's Afraid of the Song of the South and uh, the revised Vault of Walt. I, 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 I thank you for that. Uh, all of you out there, thanks for keeping the magic alive and uh, keep listening to WDW Radio. 
come back, we'll get a Surrey bike, and we'll explore the outside of the Boardwalk Resort. Jim, thanks again. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I ask you to challenge yourself to see how well you know your Disney details, history, trivia, or maybe I'll play a random sound clip or quote a line from a show or an attraction, ask you to identify where in Walt Disney World you may have heard it. We'll select one winner randomly from all the correct entries to win a Disney prize package. But before we get to this week's question, let's go back to last week, review our question and the answer, and select our winner. So last week, we rode aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine, went back in time to 1993, looking at Walt Disney World's past and changes, and I asked you to visit Tomorrowland and name two attractions that once occupied the space where Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger Spin currently resides. And once again, you guys are awesome because of the few hundred of you that entered, all of you got this correct. Again, I was looking for anything from if you had wings to if you could fly, Delta Dream Flight, or just Dream Flight, or Take Flight. And those attractions go back to 1972, when the first attraction in that space, if you had wings opened, it was sponsored by Eastern Airlines, ran from about uh, 15 years until June of 1987, when the sponsorship ended and the ride was renamed If You Could Fly. That attraction, which is pretty much the same as If You Had Wings, except without all the Eastern references, Closed in January 1989, just six months later, a new attraction opened, completely rethemed, called Delta Dream Flight, obviously sponsored by Delta Airlines. In January 1996, that was renamed Dream Flight uh, after Delta pulled their sponsorship, and it remained that way until June of that year when it closed down, reopened once again, this time as Take Flight. That attraction closed in January 1998, and eventually reopened again as Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger Spin 10 months later. Thank you again to all of you who played. Congratulations to each and every one of you that got that correct gold star to some of you who named each and every one of the attractions. You got no bonus points, but kudos to you. You know your Disney World history. Again, you were playing for all six of my audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World, a WDW Radio luggage tag and a button, and a signed copy of Walt Disney World Trivia Book Volume 2. And this week's winner is Wendy Valadaria. So, Wendy, congratulations. Thank you again for playing. If you played last week and didn't win, I appreciate you entering, but don't worry because here's your next opportunity to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, as long as we're talking about Disney's Boardwalk Resorts, one of my favorite features there is the Luna Park Pool Area. So, here's your question. Tell me, what is the name of the water slide at Disney's Boardwalk Resort. You'll have until Sunday, February 3rd at 11.59 p.m. to email your answers to contest at wdwradio.com. We'll be playing again for all the audio tours, a luggage tag, button, a mystery pin from New Fantasyland. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Please make sure you come by the website over at www.radio.com. Check out our blog, videos, subscribe to our newsletter, download the free WDW Radio app, and lots more. 
Be sure and also join us Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, for our live video broadcast and chat where you can be part of the discussion where we talk about this week's Walt Disney World news over at www.radiolive.com. You can email me with a question at lou at www.radio.com or call the voicemail be heard on the air, 407-900-9391. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Lou Mangiello. And come and like the page, facebook.com slash Radio. While you're on the site, be sure and check out the events page and tune in Saturday, February 9th for our sixth anniversary show. Go by the blog, vote, and you can help determine what we do during our six-hour adventure in Epcot. And then come by if you're going to be in the parks to the meet of the month, Saturday, February 9th, 4 o'clock at the Electric Umbrella in Epcot. We'll have a lot of surprises, a mystery will be revealed, information about our fantasy cruise, some dates about our family museum, and lots, lots more. You can also find out more by visiting wdwradio.com slash six year, the number six, Y-E-A-R. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, Mouse Fan Travel. It's who I use. It's who I highly recommend, whether you're going to Disney World, Disneyland, Adventures by Disney, Disney Cruise Liner, anywhere in the world. Becky and her team of agents not only give you the best possible prices, all available discounts, even if they come up after you book, but it's a level of personal service that they give you that is their hallmark. Check them out over at mousefantravel.com when you're coming down to Walt Disney World. And when you're coming down to Walt Disney World, maybe you want something a little bit bigger, multiple master bedrooms for you, grandma, grandpa, other extended family, and more. The allstarvacationhomes.com has more than 150 homes with up to nine bedrooms just a couple of miles away from Walt Disney World. Again, you can find them at allstarvacationhomes.com. And if you want some Disney magic delivered right to your door or to your iPad or Amazon Kindle device, Celebrations Magazine is available over at celebrationspress.com as well as on the Apple App Store. It's a bi-monthly magazine celebrating all the magic of the Disney parks, the films, and much more. Again, you can find out more information over at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links to your favorite episodes or come by and comment over on Facebook. And please rate and review the show and the app over in iTunes. Very helpful. Very, very much appreciated. And finally, and most importantly, I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to tune in each and every week and for allowing me to share my passion for Disney with you through this show and so many other ways every day. And your friendship is a gift. And I want you to remember that life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Go slow and steady towards what your goals are and enjoy every step of the journey along the way. Hope you guys have a great week this week. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou. This is Kira. And Hector. From California. We're calling right now from Germany and Epcot. We're on our first day of a six-day vacation. And it's all thanks to you and the unofficial guides. You both have uh, made our vacation possible. We're really, really excited. And this is uh, this is Hector's first visit, so he's experiencing everything for the first time, which is just the best. Right? All the food you recommended. Oh, yeah. Every, everywhere we go, I, I say, oh, Lou said this. The school bread was awesome. We're sharing a bratwurst right now, and it's it's great. So thanks for everything, Lou. Uh, keep them coming, and uh, see ya. Hi, Lou. This is Heather. I am a new listener. I've been ha- I've been listening for about a month now. I have a new iPhone that I've been listening to your show on, and I listen while I cook dinner every night. And when there's a lull in the day, I listen to the show, and sometimes I get so hooked, I crank up the volume on my iPhone, and I listen in the shower because I can't wait 10 minutes to hear the end of the show I've been listening to. And I just want to tell you thank you for telling the listeners that you love us 
and that we're part of your family. And for being so positive and not too critical, I, I just don't think people hear that kind of positive energy enough these days, and, and I really appreciate that. And I love the histories you share and the tips, the news, the funny and informative guests you have, and the overall charm of the show, and that it's clean entertainment. I really appreciate that I can have my kids running in and out of the room, and I'm not afraid of what they're going to hear on your show. And I just want to say, hey, hopefully someday I'll see you in the park. We don't live close, but uh, if we're ever coming your way, we'll, we'll try and make it to see you. Thanks, Lou. Take care. You've got a friend in me. Yeah.